So we've had a ton of fun talking with filmmakers, with actors, with teachers, all the people on Discount Film School. So much so that I've decided to write the first book dedicated to the Discount Film School concept. More Weight, The Making of Having Fun Up There and Other Filmmaking Tales is now available in print, digital, hardcover, paperback, and audiobook. Uh, go to lulu.com slash or go to redcowentertainment.com slash store. So pick it up. More Weight, The Making of Having Fun Up There and Other Filmmaking Tales. It chronicles everything from all the way back to 10 pounds through Rabo through Sexually Frank and then a page-by-page, chapter-by-chapter account of the making of having fun up there. Uh, I think it's really, really cool. It was super fun to write, and I would love for you to read it. And it, it is very much written for those of you who have actually listened to these Discount Film School podcasts. So pick that up and enjoy this show. Hi, I'm Frankie Frayne, and I've been making movies since I was a kid. I've made four low-budget feature films of varying success, and I've been to film school. Twice. For better or worse, I've developed a science for completing feature-length films on pocket change, and it has a lot to do with the conversations you'll hear on this podcast with teachers, friends, and artists. You don't have to pay 40 grand a year for bad advice. This is Discount Film School. Welcome back to Discount Film School. Okay, so you've listened to a lot of episodes where we documented the entire process, every single production day on having fun up there. <clears throat> and you've even heard about some of the the fallout, especially if you've uh, looked at the book yet, uh, about our festival run, which was uh, underwhelming, to say the least. And then uh, after the book was written and the story was told of the failure of this movie about a failure, um, we ended up getting into the Massachusetts Independent Film Festival. And we had a wonderful screening at the Brattle Cinema. And um, while I'm there, I'm, I'm waiting for the Q&A. It's always one of my, my favorite parts of any screening. And uh, uh, this gentleman by the name of Dean Treadway is the one who calls us up and asks us the questions, and it's clear that he, that he dug the movie. So we, uh, the next night, we go to the after party, and he presents us a couple of awards, which was really cool, and we started talking about movies. And I said, this guy is obviously in love with cinema. I would love to have him on a podcast. So I asked him, come on Discount Film School, right? But that's when I started actually researching the guy. And uh, uh, he points me to Filmicability, which is his blog. And this is a guy who loves the shit out of movies. Uh, and it, reading through a lot of the posts, it was it was kind of getting me, you know, as a filmmaker, like sometimes you forget how much you love movies. And that blog just jazzed me all over again from scratch in a really romantic way that I haven't felt in a long time. Uh, additionally, he's a co-host on uh, Movie Geeks United um, on Blog Talk Radio. And he is, you'll hear all about it, basically the Forrest Gump of movies. Uh, <laughs> it seems to have been everywhere. So Dean Treadway for a very special episode of Discount Film School, Skyping in from Atlanta, Georgia. How you doing, Dean? Very well. How are you? Thank you for coming on and talking to us. I'm absolutely thrilled. So I did some research. 30,000 movies you estimate that you've seen in your lifetime. Yeah, I mean, including, including, you know, I, I'm including, look, I, I used to be a film festival programmer. So in, in that, in that one, two years alone, I saw 2,500 movies just in covering, uh, just in doing my work for the film festival. Uh, and that's including shorts and, and features. And I consider shorts to be films all in, unto themselves. So, you know, there's some 30 second movies out there that were done by Stan Brackage or whatever that I consider a complete movie. So yeah, if you, if you consider, um, 
features and shorts. I think thirty thousand is a is a relatively safe estimate. How did you actually come up with that number? How did you estimate that? I mean, pro, uh, so you probably took into consideration programming the festivals. I, I took that into consideration. I took into consideration the fact that uh, when I was reviewing films uh, uh, on a regular basis uh, in print, I would see maybe about 250 movies a year, 250, 300 movies a year. Then I considered, you know, my childhood and so forth and so on. And I, it's just a really rough estimate. But I mean, I just, you know, it's it could be more. <laughs> it could be more than that. So, uh, or it could be less. So your, fir- your first post on Filmic Ability, which again is the blog that you write and, and you, you uh, return to uh, fairly regularly, um, mm-hmm. is your first post, which was in 2008. So you've been doing the blog for six years? Yes. Um, it, it, you maintain that kind of regularly it, <clears throat> in as much as you it, – it, it acts as something of an autobiography. Yes. And you start with – uh, basically the, the romanticization, romanticization of seventies drive through. And I want to read a piece of this because it, it, I started like tearing up in the middle of this and I, I'm not even, I, I was a child of the nineties. I was born in 86 that, you know, the drive, the drive in movie is not really my experience, but somehow it still speaks to my love of cinema. So here's, here's the little, here's the paragraph that really did it for me. Going to the drive-in always has been and always will be a mystical experience for me. Being under the stars and feeling the summer breeze blow through your hair with the stars and the planes up above, munching on concession stand pizza slices or corn dogs, it was just like nothing one can now imagine. Further, hearing 60s pop songs like The Boxer by Simon and Garfunkel or Nights in White Satin by the Moody Blues echo out into the ether over hundreds of drive-in speakers, which, with the advent of radio-transmitted sound, have now left the scene. Or hearing the gruff dialogue from movies like My Name is Nobody or Easy Rider bounce off the movie screen back at you in a Doppler effect. Waiting for the rain to die down so you could stop watching the film through a sheet of water flowing over the windshield. Getting the little handbills telling you what was coming up next week and the week after. My first taste of repertory programming. Ooh, the Bad News Bears. We gotta see that. And it's on with Theater of Blood. (laughs) Having a second and maybe better, maybe worse movie to look forward to after the first one had ended. Playing on the slightly rusted swing sets in front of the screen, as if you were on stage. Wandering around to see if you could catch anyone doing it in the backseat of their car. The taste of the popcorn, the soda and the candies. Mmm, chuckles. And the movies themselves, trashy or brilliant. So you you say in here that, uh, that's beautiful by the way. You say, oh, you say in here that your parents were like not afraid to take you to the movies. And, and you almost can't even quite explain that. It's like they just had you know they, a, a trust in you as a child. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, they uh, they had no fear about taking me to the movies because I I guess because uh, if they took me to something scary, I didn't wake up and have a nightmare, or uh, I didn't really you know I didn't try and ape a lot of the dialogue, so I wasn't saying fuck and goddamn a lot to them and everything if Not I yet. have to hear it. Uh, I didn't um, you know all. They just they just sensed that it was something that I enjoyed, that I was uh, gaining knowledge from, that it was a, it was good and cheap, you know, to go to the drive-in. I mean, we could all go in one car, and it would be a very nominal price, and we could bring in our own food if we wanted, and so forth. So, and we got two movies, a whole night of uh, entertainment out of it. 
so we would go twice a weekend. You know, we would go sometimes Friday and Saturday, and they would give me, after they realized that I knew something about movies, particularly when I turned eight, nine, ten, so forth, um, they would give me a great leeway in choosing the movies that we went to go see. And, um, and so, you know, all of that kind of contributed to a kind of a amazing education where, where they were, uh, completely trustful. Uh, and I was also somebody who didn't shy away from going to see, you know, kids movies too. So, so they, I don't know that I honestly think that I don't even know if they could explain what kind of kid they had on their hand, but uh, God bless them. They, uh, they completely uh, supported me in my love of movies. And uh, my mom still does to this day. And um, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't really explain it, but I'm, I'm extremely thankful for it. I mean, later on, they would take me to when, when the drive-in, when we kind of stopped going to the drive-ins around the, around the eighties or so, uh, they would take me to repertory cinemas and so forth. So they were, they were completely, that's where I got a further education in the film. So people, uh, people might not know what a repertory cinema is. What, what is that? Can you describe that? Well, well, it's basically a cinema that is devoted ma- mainly to showing classic movies. And I'm not just talking about classics that came from like 30 years ago, but maybe something that was released two years ago or something like that, that they, you know, traditionally they do it on a double bill. The Brattle, the cinema that you uh, showed your movie at is primarily a uh, repertory cinema, although they also show first run things like on a, like a one night basis, but they changed their programming. It's, it's, it's a kind of a cinema too, that changes the programming like almost every day. So it's like every day there's something new. It's the kind of thing that's kind of dying out now because obviously there's, you know, the other platforms to watch movies on. And, uh, but, uh, when you can find a really good town with a repertory cinema, like, uh, like you know New York and the Walter Reed Cinema there and a few others and and you know the Brattle in in uh, Cambridge Massachusetts that um that's you know that's uh I don't know it's very special and and it, it um a repertory cinema if you have a really good one in your town there's one here called the Plaza Theater in Atlanta that's uh it's a great theater but they're they're kind of centered in on horror and that's because a lot of the people that come out to support that cinema are mainly horror fans so but if if you can find one in your town that um will show these movies it it it, it uh, a wide variety of movies it kind of excites you about the possibilities of cinema i mean that's I mean, I was lucky enough to grow up in the time of drive-ins and of repertory uh, cinema. So those two things, plus also watching watching movies on television, uh, like on any kind of, any given afternoon, but particularly on Saturday and Sunday afternoons when they were showing old movies all over the place, not just on TCM like they do now. You can only find old movies on TCM now. But uh, but back then they were all over the place on on WOR out of New York or WGN out of Chicago or the uh, W what was then WTCG out of Atlanta which is now WTBS. All these places were showing not just movies uh, 
not just old movies from the 30s and 40s and 50s, but also movies from the 70s that maybe didn't get a huge run and so forth. So all all three of those things combining, you know, were really the basis of my film education. So as you're gaining your film literacy, um, because that's really what it sounds to me is what's happening is is you're you're moving from being a a film fan to a film lover to a uh, you know a, a, a something of a film scholar even at a young an age. expert yeah, yeah an, an, an expert um and 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 you're doing that simply by watching um do you know that this is something that you want to do as a career or something career based uh at, at that as, age as i yeah at that age yes i i did know but uh i i i had it i had the feeling that i wanted to be a filmmaker um uh, and I did pursue that. I went to NYU film school um, for uh, a couple of semesters, but unfortunately it was too expensive for me to, to keep doing that. So, uh, and then I also went, I studied it at Georgia state university as well. So I have made films and I've, I've made uh, TV shows as part of the public access uh, program that that's still going on here in Atlanta and uh, I've participated in various roles in other people's movies as well, including as an actor. I mean, I've really, I've kind of done a lot of different things. Um, however, pursuing film making as a career is something that I'm kind of pre- at present reluctant to get into because I'm not sure that I want to get obsessive about something like that. I'm not in particularly in the greatest financial situation to do something like that, but I am, I I'm, I'm constantly toying with, uh, you know, making movies and so forth. And, but, but generally I have come to the realization that what I really like to do is watch movies and I like to write about them and I like to talk about them, but I like to do both of those things only on my terms alone. <laughs> I, I want my terms, not anybody else's terms. So, for instance, I don't want to review. I like watching good movies. I don't like watching what I consider to be bad movies. So I don't really want to be the kind of critic that's uh, being forced to go and see some film that I know is going to be bad when I go in <laughs> and just I just come out and say, well, I knew it was going to be bad. And it was. And I don't really like tearing down movies like that. So. If you look on Filmicability, you'll see that most of my reviews are positive. Yeah, you described yourself on Filmicability as a film appreciator, less mm-hmm. uh, more so than a film critic. Yes. Um, uh, as somebody who has watched as many films as you have, you must have some criteria by which you choose the films you want to watch. It sounds like you you kind of know what you're not going to like. You kind of know what you, you do like. But it's trailers are lies. It's all a mixed bag. How do you... How do you decide what you're going to spend an hour and a half to three hours watching? Um, well, uh, definitely you don't trust the marketing. So you don't trust the trailer. Uh, in fact, it's it's best not to even watch the trailers, really, uh, because they reveal too much. And, and it's also best to only, for me, I only look at, um, like, I learned a lot doing doing film festivals. I learned a lot. And one thing that I learned was all I need to know is who did it, where it came from, how long is it, and like a one-line synopsis. I don't want to know the whole story. Just a one-line synopsis of of and that kind of thing almost works also for bigger movies, indie movies, big and big 
studio movies as well. In terms of knowing whether or not you want to watch them? Yes, I like to know who's involved with it. That's the number one thing, who's involved with it, because I, I know about the past. So I like to know who the cinematographer is and who the who the actors are, who the who the director is, the writer, their past and everything. Uh, if it sounds like an intriguing, uh, like sort of a log line, like if the log line is intriguing, like what it's about, just the one sentence synopsis. I think every movie can be reduced down to one sentence, by the way, of <laughs> what it's about. Um, if the if the log line sounds intriguing, uh, those are the two things basically. Who's involved and what and what is it about? Very put very simply. I've struggled with that though as a filmmaker. Where I I remember I was in a I made this movie called Sexually Frank before the before the film that you programmed, and um, you know a lot of people were like based on the log line based on the title they were just like oh another movie about twenty somethings talking about sex you know ick. And then they, they, they were some the people that liked it anyway were surprised by the treatment of it that it was kind of a, a new take on an old or a recurring theme. And so so had you know it, it, there's got to be a margin of error there, right? I mean, of course. Well, I mean, yes, you're you're you know, that's that's where you, that's where I run into the bad movies that I do see. And yeah. It's like, you no, know, I'll, I'll I'll watch something, oh, it sounds intriguing. I'll watch it. And then then I see it, oh, will it fail on, on certain in my opinion on certain levels. Yeah. So so that's that's you know seeing bad movies too like increases your education as well. But there's only so you know there's so many so much bad stuff coming down the pike, especially by the studios these days. That um, you know, but I, I'll tell you another thing too. I don't read a lot of reviews really anymore, but I do have a sort of sense, especially in the day of age of the internet, of like of like the general consensus of how a movie is. So if if certain voices out there that I trust are saying, yeah, this is interesting, like particularly A.O. Scott from The New York Times and uh, and maybe those guys at the A.V. Club for The Onion, if they're kind of interested in it or say, hey, it might have looked bad, but uh, but it's actually really good then I'll go, huh, OK, I'll check it out. Yeah. So so I do I do pay attention to some of that some of that stuff, like what's coming through the atmosphere of movie love out there. <laughs> you watch yeah. so much stuff that I, you know, w w one, of the, one of the services that your blog can do is kind of vet things for people. I think that that's a lot of what it can do. And uh, one of my favorite posts that you shared with me that I got a chance to look at was uh, a breakdown of directors that you believe have done consistently quality work uh, that mm -hmm. really, really haven't misstepped. And, yes. and that right there is, is, you know, very few of us get to watch an entire filmography for a director. And the fact that you have, um, it made me want to want to just start going through movies right off the bat. So I definitely recommend listeners take a look at that. Uh, I, I think, I think you call it a, you know, a, a perfect track records or directors with track. Yeah. records. Yeah. Yeah. Tw I think it's like, I think it's like only about seven or 10 names there, but yeah. So about uh, yeah, uh, somewhere in that neighborhood of directors that have a perfect track record and, and number one is my favorite director of all time, or, or at least of this time period. Let me put it that way. I mean, Stanley Kubrick, yes, but um, he's my favorite director of all time. But um, he's perfect. Uh, still, yeah. I mean, he, he had one misstep though. He had Killer's Kiss, which I think mm -hmm. he only worked kind of intermittently. Um, I think that's his weakest movie. And then, of course, you know his earlier movies. I mean, like Fear and Desire, which is better than Killer's Kiss, is still not a 
perfect movie. Even I mean, even Kubrick tried to suppress that. But um, those are uh, those are early shorts, aren't they? I mean, that wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily release those in like a like you know the complete collection, the complete Blu-ray collection. Or well, no, I mean, uh, Fear and Desire and and Killer's Kiss are both features. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, both, they're both features. Uh, so uh, he did do some early shorts though. Uh, that that would be better as a as co- on a compendium. Those are interesting curios or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but uh, um, so, but the only director that I've ever seen that has never made a misstep at all, that is through shorts, television work, features, anything, is the guy that headed that list, whose name is Mike Lee, the British director, yeah, uh, who primarily works out of London and. Um, and has a movie coming out this Christmas called Mr. Turner, which just won Best Actor at the Cannes Film Festival uh, for Timothy's Fall, who's in a lot of his movies. Uh, Mike Lee is the only director that I've ever seen that has it just seems impossible. He just can't make anything bad. It's just, I don't know. He just he just cannot do it. It's the <laughs> it's, highest. It's, it's the highest compliment. I mean, as somebody who who has his own filmography that that I'm always growing. It's it, it it's the thing you hope that someday people will look back and, and say, but it's tough, man, because if you release something while you're still learning and you're always learning, uh, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to fuck up at some point. So it's, it, it's some, you know, I, I think your list is really the people that just were born to make movies. Yes. Um, yeah, I think so. It's, it's something, by the way, it's something that, you know, you want to strive to, but, uh, but if you can't do it, it's okay because there is a, there is a learning situation, a learning curve and everything. And, and, uh, you know, I mean, like the, 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 those people are just sort of Superman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. You almost want to start your filmography after you've worked out the kinks. But honestly, uh-huh. I mean, you're never satisfied. You know, I, I always whenever I think I'm like, wow, I really did a great film there. You know, then I make the next one and and I, I, I surprise myself. And then suddenly you dislike the old one. And it, yeah, you go back to the old one. and You say, hey, that wasn't so yeah. that was it, it's, you know, it's interesting in the world of like, okay, so I have been a film festival programmer and, uh, for, for the festival that you were in, I was the juror. So, uh, I was the jury president. So like, let's just say, and I was also selecting some of the films. I was the one that selected your movie. I, I was the first one in the film festival that watched it. I was the one that selected it. I wrote a little review of it. I said, yeah, you gotta have it. Um, and, uh, and, it's well. First of all, I wanted to praise you on your movie. I haven't seen Sexually Frank yet, even though you just sent me a copy. But um, uh, your movie is great because it um, it has a sure place of sense and uh, a sense of time and place. Uh, it has really, really good actors in it, as including yourself, of course. Uh, um, uh, Maria is really good in it. Maria Nadipov, uh, and your lead, John Ryan is really great in it. Yeah. And the screen, the screenplay is really good. And I also think that it's, it's kind of brave for you. I said this to you at the, at the festival, it's kind of brave for you to put out a movie as a feature. That's really only 65 minutes long. That's a very difficult time, time for a feature. However, you resisted the you resisted the temptation to make it any longer, uh, uh, and to pad it out. 
And you also resisted the temptation to cut it down so that it became a short. So it was just, the movie was just as long as it needed to be. And I consider that to be the sign of a sure-footed filmmaker who's uh, unafraid to just say, this is the movie and this is it. And that's, that's it. Well, it took, it took four films to get there and it's, it's, it's not unlike your, you know, you're like, look, I, yeah, I love watching and, and critiquing films, but I want to do it on my terms. And, you know, that mo- having fun up there is a movie about doing things on your terms and saying, like, I, <laughs> I do it because I love it and I'm not going to change, you know, I'm not going to pad out the film or cut it down to to fit a format uh, this I, I created, a you know, the closest thing that I can create to a piece of art. And, and that's how it should exist. So, yeah, it you know, it's it would be almost antithetical to the themes of the movie to try to pander necessarily to to a, a time slot or something like that. So, yeah, exactly. So thanks for saying that. But- but but to speak to your whole thing of like going back to your uh, fir- first movies and being sort of di- uh, maybe disappointed with them or, or seeing the getting some kind of perspective there. Let's put it that way. You're outside of yourself. It's like, who, which kid made this, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So but as a film festival programmer and uh, as the jury president and maybe a programmer again, I might be, might be the programmer of that festival next year. We're talking about that. Yep. Uh, but um, it's interesting. You, your face, it's like, okay, the, the whole idea, and I'm sure your listeners will be interested in this because I'm sure they want to submit to film festivals. So Absolutely. imagine, imagine a Okay, you're a film festival programmer. Basically, what you've been given is carte blanche and your own video store. It's a video store, okay? You go into it. You can rent every movie in it for free. But you, there's, let's say there's however many. If there's 300 of them in a year, if there's 10,000 of them in a year, um, you have to watch all of them in a certain space of time. You really don't know anything about any of them because there's no people in them. For the most part, there's no people in them that have a past in films, right? really. So they're not recognizable names. Each box is just completely blank. There's no, <laughs> there's no picture on the box, no anything, okay? Uh, all there is is the title, the length of the movie, where it comes from, one line or a paragraph about what the movie is about and that's it okay now you can watch all of these movies okay so you start watching them you just pick them off the shelf okay i'll start here pick them off the shelf you put it in and nine times out of ten it's probably not something that's that great really right okay but even if it is something that's good you know, you like it. It's good. Then you watch the next movie and the next movie is fantastic. And that gives you a new perspective on the earlier film. It's mm-hmm. like, maybe that movie wasn't so great. <laughs> so I only have, as a pro- programmer, you only have so many slots to fill. You only have so many films that you can accept. Cause you know, you know, you work all that out mathematically, how many movies you think you can accept. And then, you just that process just keeps getting more and more complex the more and more movies that you you watch 
And then, of course, then there's those movies that are just absolutely awful from the get-go. It's just like, and okay, so what, I guess your listeners would also want to know what constitutes a movie that's terrible from the get-go. Two things. If the acting is bad, there's no way to save it. No way to save it. It doesn't matter if you've got the greatest story in the world. You are not going to save that movie if the acting is bad. People are not going to want to sit through it. It's just going to be an embarrassment for you to program it. And generally so, generally speaking, would you rate performances as the number one priority for, for really most narrative films? Number one. Number one priority. I mean – your movie can look dark or look in a certain way that's that's maybe not perfect or whatever, uh, but that can be surmounted. Also, another the other second thing I would say, and of course the other two two other things. Okay, editing is incredibly important. Mm. You don't want a film. You really want to shave that movie down to its barest essentials. And I mean, like, go and take a look at every single frame in it. If there's one, I can watch a movie. I can watch a movie. Let's say the movie begins with somebody waking up in the morning and hitting their alarm clock. Their alarm clock's going off, and the alarm clock's beeping. And there's a shot of the alarm clock with the hand coming in to, to cut it off. Even if the, I remember watching one movie saying, oh, my God, that shot is too long. And then, and then I said, and then every other subsequent shot was too long. It would be a shot of somebody talking. And then there would just be a second too long after they had finished talking. And you're just like, the editing in this is way off. And it just slows the movie down and it makes it into like molasses. It moves like molasses. So the editing is very, very important. Cut do, it down to the barest essentials. Do you find that most directors of films that are submitted to festivals are also their own editors? Not often. Not I mean, often. maybe, oh, wow. maybe, I mean, I, it's funny. I've never really, maybe, maybe 50, 50, 50. I don't know. Actually, I've never really done the crunch the numbers on that. So that's a, that's an excellent question, but I've never really crushed the numbers on it. Well, do you find yourself when you're, when you're watching a film that you're intrigued by either because it's terrible or because it's good or whatever, do you find yourself looking into uh, who, who's the, who directed this and did they also write it and did they also edit it? Do you ever look into those things? Oh yeah. yeah. I do look at that. I do look at that stuff, but you know, I figure that, I figure that any indie filmmaker out there is is also intimately involved in e every aspect of the movie. So I'm sure when it comes time to editing, even though someone else maybe get the editor's credit, you know, like Thelma Shoemaker gets the editing credit on all of the Martin Scorsese movies, but Martin Scorsese is definitely in the room. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so. So I assume that's the case for most most indie filmmakers too that they have somebody who is an editor but they are definitely in the room like making making some choices. So I just generally say the director is definitely has his hand in the editing as well mm -hmm. whether they get the credit or not. Mm -hmm. I mean I think most of the time they don't get the credit. Uh they somebody else gets that credit because sometimes I I you know but but sometimes Sometimes there's somebody, you know, that's doing a, uh, a Stanley Kubrick or a David Lean and editing the movies themselves or James Cameron too edits his own movies. So I never under, I, I don't understand how you, how you can direct a low budget film and not edit it yourself. I, to me, that's like, uh, 
having a child and then letting somebody else raise it. It's more important to me that, to edit than it is to even write. Um, Editing is the reason to make movies, uh, if you ask me. It's, uh, it's you go through all the heartache of getting it on, getting it on the material that you're shooting on. You go through all that heartache and the writing and so forth just so you can get into the editing room and see it all come together. That's where the real excitement happens. I mean, you have certain, certain levels of excitement in there in the shooting, obviously, when the performances are coming together and, and all the elements are coming together on set and everything. But, but when you're in the editing room, that's where you feel like a tremendous, like cloud cloud walking kind of excitement where the music comes in and the, and you're, you're seeing the quality of the acting and you're able to manipulate things to the point where you see it all come together. That's the reason to be a filmmaker, if you ask me. Yeah, I'm, I completely agree. It's it, it's the reason to survive production. And suddenly you're you're living outside of the deadlines and the weather and the actors who didn't show up on time and the food. It's all mm-hmm. the logistics are gone and the raw material exists to sculpt something with. And it's, it's the, if, especially if there's no demand for your film, um, really there, there's, there's an endless amount of time to, to work with it. So. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's your one, that's a luxury that you have as a, as a, as a indie filmmaker is, is you have plenty of time, at least, at least in that realm, in the editing realm to really get it right. And, uh, and then also pre-production you have, a lot of time there too, because you can rehearse with your actors and so forth. This is these are luxuries that aren't available for for bigger filmmakers, obviously, because they're on a stricter time schedule. So that's the time I, I always say is the uh, you know maybe not for pr- the production side of it, but time pre-production and post-production is your big luxury as an indie filmmaker. More planning time, more massaging time. So uh-huh. you, so you you prioritize acting number 1, editing number 2, what's number 3? I would say I would say um well, script I mean scripting is obviously important. It's it's important to 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 do a story that's that's interesting, you know. So, you know, that that, that to me is kind of a kind of a given I'd say you know but uh, but just getting down to the nuts and bolts of things like sound is pretty important too because if unless you're doing a silent movie or whatever but if you can't hear anything or if, if it's all just a jumbled mess then it doesn't matter how much work you put into the script or how much work you put into getting the acting right or whatever if you can't hear the actors then it's not going to work I mean, it'd even work, it'd even be okay if you can't see the actors, but but the acting is still good. Uh, if the cinematography isn't quite as great as it should be or whatever, even that, I'd be able to accept a movie that, that makes some mistakes on that level. But sound, editing, and acting, no way. And then screen screenplay, as far as stories go, I mean, the value of a story is is all kind of subjective, really. It's all up to the viewers to whether they find the story valuable or not. So, it's a little bit more difficult to make a judgment call on on stories. You know, I can tell you what stories interest me, but uh, but then again, there might be some other stories that might interest some other people uh, that wouldn't interest me. So. Do you see a lot of submissions where the they they the filmmaker falls down in the, in the sound and otherwise things things were pretty good but they they just didn't get the sound right? I've seen some. Yeah. I've seen some. 
I, yeah. I, I went to, I went to film school twice and, and, uh, I, it seemed to happen all the time. It's, it's like this elusive, uh, maybe it's because it, it, it seems minor. And so people don't, uh, it's, it's not the thing they spend time learning about or learning how to yeah. do quite right. That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. I think that's right. I think it's the, it's possibly the least sexy part of, of, of movie making, but, uh, cause I mean, I, I defy you to name even one sound designer right now. I mean, yeah. uh, I could I could maybe name five or six, and maybe. You're, and you're Dean maybe, Treadway. <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe ten. Yeah. But uh, but seriously, I, I I don't know a lot of names of sound people, and um, and so it's it is the least sexy part of it. But it's also so intricate. Uh, there's so many variables that can affect the sound. I mean, you can be filming next to a, uh, you can be shooting next to a neon sign and get a very irritating buzz on the soundtrack that you can't get out of, get out. Or maybe you filmed in a room that has an echo in it, but that it didn't sound like there was an echo when you were in the room shooting, but when you get it on screen, there's an echo in it and you have to go and fix it. If you don't know how to fix it, then it brings you out of the movie and it's so all of these intricacies, you really need somebody who really loves the art of sound working on your sound uh, because otherwise, otherwise your movie's going to have a little bit of a problem. And, uh, and it, yes, it happens a lot. I see it a lot in submissions. I see a lot of submissions uh, even this year uh, in the hundred movies I went through for the, uh, for the Massachusetts festival. Uh, I saw movies that I just can't I, every, every time I'm in this process, I see movies that I just can't believe that people thought would make it into any film festivals. So yeah, <laughs> or, it's, you know, it's not like the, you know, the, the submission uh, expense is small. I mean, it's, you know, it tends to be 40 to $80 a festival. So you would think that'd be a deterrent, but um, <clears throat> we all have to have a, a level of, of delusion to do this at all. So maybe that's what that is. That's true. <laughs> um, I, I so t tell me, do you, as a programmer, the times you've programmed or the times you've juried, um, do you feel obligated to watch every submission all the way through, regardless of quality or, uh, I've, I, we've spoken to other, uh, festival programmers on this podcast. I spoke to the programmer of the Sydney underground film festival, which we participated in last year. Um, and he said, you know, I do 15 minutes. He goes, I, I, I always will do 15 minutes, but if they don't have me in 15 minutes, they're really not going to have my audience in 15 minutes. So I, I, I feel okay turning it off. What's your policy on that? I, I think that's a good policy. I think that's, that's fine. I mean, I've certainly seen some movies though, that I, it, it was a struggle to get through 15 minutes of it. So, I mean, and, uh, it's a little different for shorts. I mean, that's why the knowing the length of the movie is very important going in because, if you're if you're sitting there and it's a 10 minute movie and it, it doesn't have you in the first two minutes, then something's something's wrong and it's OK to cut it off, I think. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, like a slight there's sort of a sliding scale because there's like you have to know. That's why you have to know how long the movie is, because that's how you how much time, you know, to give to the movie for it to get you. Uh, so. I've definitely cut off some movies two minutes in, uh, depending on their length, because I just said, there's no way this, this, this thing is complete, uh, completely wrong. And, you know, I, the thing about programming a film festival is 
What you're trying to do is create an experience for the audience where the audience comes and I, my goal is to program some, a festival that every single thing that you see has some merit in it. They might not always be the greatest movie that you've ever seen, but they have at least one element to it that makes it makes it worth watching. It could be a single performance. It could be the photography. It could be it could be just uh, and they don't always have to be very slick either. They could, I've seen many sort of homemade movies, you know, made by complete amateurs that were absolutely astounding. Um, so. Um, but uh, but yeah, to answer you to yes, I, I I totally will only give a movie so much leeway, and then uh, my term is I get the big gong out, you know, like the gong show, <laughs> and uh, and it's like it's time to gong this thing. And also, let me just say this too, I would prefer, even though I didn't do this at the Massachusetts Independent Film Festival because this wasn't uh, this option wasn't available to me. But when I was a programmer for the festival here in Georgia, the Dahlonega International Film Festival, I would like, I preferred to have at least one juror in there with me watching the films mm -hmm. uh, so that I could mm -hmm. turn to them and say, is this me or is this great? Or is this me or is this shit? And should the gong come out? Yeah. And then we talk about it a little bit and then we say, yeah, this is out or this is totally in. And by the way, if a movie is good, I watch it all the way through. So if the movie has got me, and even if it starts to lose me 40 minutes in or whatever, but it then picks up or whatever, I still watch it all the way through. So anything that's good, I watch all the way through so I know exactly what it is. Because I've already made the decision, hey, this needs to be in. So I need to know exactly what the movie is in full. So it must be when you're tr sort of trying to fulfill a job and get through all the submissions, it must be really nice when you finally come across something that you might've even watched on your own accord. Uh, mm -hmm. You can't, you can't necessarily uh, pr uh, promise that that will happen every day, but it must be, it must be relieving. It must be kind of like a, a breath of fresh air. It is. It's a, it's, I mean, when you see something that's just absolutely spectacular it, uh, and you feel like you're the first person to ever watch it, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and it's kind of your it's partially your responsibility to bring it to light for audiences uh it's extremely important i mean extremely important and and thrilling uh that's where that's you know that's where it just becomes like a dream job you know so i mean i would love to be a film festival programmer as i mean i think that's my perfect job you know so you, you find it really gratifying. Yeah. 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 I mean, I love, I love the, I love the whole experience of, uh, being a film festival programmer from, uh, you know, uh, watching the movies, conducting the juries, uh, uh, writing the reviews. I mean, I believe one thing that I would do if I was the programmer for the Massachusetts festival, for instance, next year, uh, what I would do is I would write a review, a little mini review of each movie, rather than just relying on the on the director's statements or the director's um, uh, synopsis of their own movie. I mean, I might quote from that synopsis if I think it's particularly effective, but uh, but you need to be as a as a film festival programmer. 
I think there needs to be more of them. Uh, like, for instance, here in Atlanta, the Atlanta Film Festival, they don't do this. And I'm, I talk to them and I say, listen, in your program, you're not really telling people why they should come and see this movie. You're only telling them what the movie is about. Right. And that's, I mean, you're not even telling them that there's a star in it or there's a director in it that's done some stuff in the past or, or anything, you know, like if it has Tom Hardy in it or something, they didn't even, they had, they showed that movie lock and in the program, they didn't even tell people that Tom Hardy was in it. So I was like, you got to get, people excited about coming to see the movie in the program. So that's why I believe you need to have reviews uh, of the movies to tell them exactly what is great about a certain film. But I like doing that. I like hosting the, hosting the, uh, the Q and A's and hosting the show. I'm unafraid to get in front of a audience and so forth. So all that stuff, I'm big ham. So, and I can talk extemporaneously about movies and I can, I remember people's names and so forth and so on. So I'm, I'm just, I'm uniquely suited for this, for that role. How did you, you uh, I, uh, I know that your journey was sort of, uh, you went to NYU film school and then uh, you worked at a number of video stores and those stories sound really cool. Can you, can you just give us a few, just a quick glimpse at what working at, I think it was the video room and a few Mm. others, what the, what those experiences of being a video store clerk was like. Yeah, video. Oh wow. Okay, so video room up in uh, was not my first video store job, but it was one of the most unusual, in that it was a Upper East Side. It was like on 84th and Third uh, in uh, Manhattan, and uh, it was one of the first video stores in the nation. I think it opened in like '78, uh, and what they did was they did they had a delivery service. So people would call up and say, what's new? What's what's on the new shelf? And you would have to go through. <laughs> okay, imagine, imagine you're behind a counter and there's six banks of phones and everybody's on a phone. And then there's this, uh, the shelving system was basically like one of those shelving systems like where you there the shelves are on tracks and you move them mm-hmm. back and forth and so forth. There's only, and so there's only so much space. So you would have to fight for space to get into, get into the shelves. And then you're on the phone and you're reading off to people like, here's what's new. Here's the new stuff. Here's what's in like, and everything. They're like, what is that? What's that movie? What's that movie about? And you would have to tell them exactly what that film was about and who was in it and everything. You have to have that right off the top of your head. You couldn't go to any books or anything like that. You have to go it right off the top of your head. So that made that kind of that was kind of training for me in some ways of like being able to talk very quickly about things uh, um, and uh, a very very unusual thing and that's the kind of thing that I've kind of taken throughout throughout my life in the various things that I've done whether it's working at Turner Network Television in the programming department and having to talk to viewers all of the time about things that were coming up on TNT or uh, or uh, uh, or uh, running the Monster Vision uh, site uh, for TNT back when Joe Bob Briggs was doing the Monster Vision thing, or answering questions about the TV shows that we had and the episodes that were coming up, and or uh, even writing writing articles about the movies that we were showing, and then and then also doing a I did a live uh, Q 
TV show called uh, Film Forum here in Georgia for uh, for about five years. And it was a live movie review show. So I had to be on camera, speaking to the camera, you know, relating to the camera, just like I'm relating now, uh, better than I'm relating now, I think, uh, to uh, I would have to speak off the top of give my reviews off the top of the head and have to I had no notes or anything like that. So no computers, no anything. So all of that stuff has, you know, uh, has entered in there. Also, you know, I worked at Kim's video up in New York city, which is, uh, now sadly gone. Uh, but they had over 120,000 titles, uh, on their shelves and, uh, everything was separated out into countries and then further separated out in directors from those countries and so forth. And you had to know where everything was in that place. And, uh, I kind of made it my job to know exactly where everything was. So, like when Ryan Gosling came in once and uh, was searching for boxing movies, I don't know exactly why. Uh, what he was, what he was, maybe he was thinking about. Maybe he was offered something like in the fighter or something like that, or yeah. a boxing role. So, uh, so I took him around to where all the boxing movies were and everything. Kept on giving him uh, things like that. He said, "You don't have to do that. It's okay. You don't have to." I said, "No, that's what I'm here for. I do this. This is what I do. That's what I love to do." And he said, "Okay, cool." So I took him in and showed him all the places, you know. But uh, but yeah, so. So you had to be you had to be IMDb before there was IMDb. I, I IMDb is like IMDb is which is extremely valuable and I love and it's still of course it it continues my helps continue my education. Uh, but uh, yeah, I was yes. You had to have, you had to have felt like it stole your thunder a little bit like it kind of, like now suddenly anybody with an iPhone can can get the same answer that you had off the top of your head. Yeah, well, you know, I can, I, I still, I still am, am able to do that, and I still get satisfaction out of doing that. So, <laughs> so it's like, it's funny, like people, I'll have the answer, and then people will still go and check it on IMDb, and they'll go, oh, oh he was right. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I am Dean B. Um, yeah. Did you, so uh, I, I understand that the first. Uh, programming opportunity you had was in Atlanta, but how did you get that opportunity? It, it, did did somebody identify you as uh, you know a, a a film expert and they said he would be great <clears throat> as a programmer here? How did that come about? Well, I was working at a uh, Atlanta store, which is still here, called Video Drum. I had uh, I had worked for Turner for about five years, and I had left that job, and uh, I had. Uh, I still had friends that were working there and one of them, Barry Norman. Uh, well, actually I had a friend named Michael Williams who was the programmer of the festival that I eventually became the programmer of. And Michael Williams asked me to be on the jury for the first, uh, Dahlonega film festival. And, uh, I sat and watched about a hundred movies, I'd say, uh, with a group of people, uh, and uh, I would provide very, very detailed notes about what exactly was good and what was exactly bad about the film. And they liked these notes so much that uh, when Michael left that job, uh, the executive director, Barry Norman, was looking for a new programmer. And he uh, was encouraged by a mutual friend to, uh, to investigate me. So he came into Videodrome where I was working and just blurted out. He just said, 
I wanted to know if you wanted to be the programming director for the film festival. And this film festival was very well uh, funded. It had five venues uh, um, in a small North Georgia town called Dahlonega, uh, one of the uh, first gold rush towns in the nation predating um, California and, uh, and Alaska. And it's now like kind of a tourist town, sort of a sleepy tourist town. Quite wonderful there, and uh, they had five venues, and the guy was getting a lot of submissions in. And well, when he asked me the question, I said, "Oh, I didn't." I said to myself, "Well, I never really thought about doing this, but yeah." <laughs> I just said, "Yeah, why not?" Yeah. And uh, and so for the next three years, I was basically spending eight eight months of my life. Uh, putting each year viewing all of these movies and writing about them and then programming them in the various slots, five venues, four days, uh, 175 movies generally, uh, generally from about 30 different countries, uh, 40, maybe 40 to 50 shorts, the rest, I mean, 40 to 50 features and the rest were shorts. And here's the other incredible thing is that over those four days and those five venues, I was able to program each program twice, not just once, but twice. So you didn't get just one screening at, at the film festival I did. You got two screenings. Oh, that's awesome. So, um, and all that happened over four, four or five days. So, um, so yeah, I, uh, I, you know, I really dug that job and, as I said, you know, I never considered the idea of being a film festival programmer. It was not even any, anything on my radar. So uh, when I got the opportunity, I took it. And I discovered that that's really the perfect thing that I should I should do, you know. I, I haven't been very aggressive in trying to get jobs uh, in this because of my own personal problems <laughs> I'm, a little, I'm a little i would say i'm a little bit lazy i do just like to watch movies and stuff and and to write about them and talk about them on my own thing without any kind of any kind of pressure i guess or whatever so but uh i'm i'm very excited about the possibility of being able to program the massachusetts festival how did so, you get as, uh, as, as a as an atlantan how did you get connected with the cambridge festival just because the uh, one of the executive directors, uh, uh, Jason Miller, uh, had been listening to uh, the podcast Movie Geeks United and found that um, that his his opinions more often than not aligned with my own, and so he said, "This guy really knows his stuff." And he said, he, he later told me, he said, "You were the kind of you were the." You were the girl that I was afraid to ask to the prom because I thought you you were totally out of my league, and I, <laughs> you know, and uh, and I said that's 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 a funny way to put it, um, but uh, yeah, so he was just a fan of the show, and he said this guy would be perfect, and so he asked, and I accepted, much to his surprise. I. Uh- you you said something uh, in one of your blog posts that I latched onto that um, that, that uh, film production 
the volume of films being produced has increased and you don't necessarily look at that as a bad thing. You actually look at it as, as a good thing. And I'm the same, I'm the same way actually, but a lot of people don't agree with us. They, they think that a high volume of production means that you need a higher level of curation. Um, it, it, so that people aren't just sort of overwhelmed by a sea of crappy movies. But I, I, I kind of more subscribe to, uh, I, I want everybody to have a camera in their hands and give it a try. And, and I want more of us to feel comfortable giving it, a, giving a try to watch their films. But what, how, how do you feel about, I mean, you've, you come from kind of something of an old world of cinema that's really transformed. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? I, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's two pronged, you know, really. I don't like the term double edged sword because all swords are double edged. Uh, But um, it's kind of a two pronged kind of way of thinking about it. Yes, they, people are correct that the larger number of movies, the larger number of movies that are out there can be overwhelming and you need more voices out there to sort of curate and point to the good stuff you know um but what's wrong with that i mean (laughs) like so what we we have a lot of voices out there now in the internet world uh and in i mean there's now there's more more film festivals than there ever have been in the history of film uh out there so there are there is more curation out there and um and so i I don't see any problem with it, really. I think that it's it's a good thing, uh, and yes, I agree with you. I think I think to I think that one of the benefits of of the cheapening of equipment and so forth is that more people can get out there and give their give their uh, you know flex these kind of artistic muscles. I mean, I remember a long time ago having a discussion with somebody, and they. They said, uh, they said, uh, oh, books are better than movies because it's, it's, it's so much more harder to do a book. And I said, well, you know, all you need to do for a book really is to have an idea, have the drive to write it, and you need a paper and a pencil. And that's it. That's all you need. It's but like, movies. It's like painting. You need a, you know, a canvas and a paintbrush, but. Right. That's it. And some paint and that's it. Right. But movies. You require the uh, you require so much more material. You require not only that, but you need the cameras and the lights, obviously, and all the people that need to be in front of the camera and all the stuff behind. So I said, movies are much harder to make. Even writing, a, even making a bad movie is harder to do than writing a bad book. Right. I mean, so, not, not like, to mention you have to you have to manage many more moods than your own when you're making a film. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. You kind of have to be a babysitter or a right. or a therapist or whatever, sure. you know. So, uh, and you have to be an artist and a technician and and all of those things all together. And and uh, yes, yeah, so for me, the fact that the fact that that things are getting cheaper now, uh, people can you know edit on their own in their own home or whatever. All of that's extremely important, and it kind of reduces that gulf between, say, writing the book, that old argument of which was harder, writing the book or writing the, the film, doing the film. Now, it's a little easier to do a film, and now more people can do it, and what's wrong with that? Yeah, <laughs> I think yeah. it's a good thing. And plus, you're going to get – we need more variety of voices out there. I, I particularly am – 
very uh, vocal uh, on the show and in my in my life for more female filmmakers because I'm finding that at this stage of my I don't know in my in my film watching career or whatever that um, I'm I'm always interested in and fe- what female filmmakers are doing. It feels like they feel like a completely fresh voice mm-hmm. film. And the fact that they're they're getting out there more and doing more work uh, because of the democratization of the of the technology, I think that's a great thing because we need that we need new voices. Yeah, I mean, if, if if the industry was was pushing out marginalized groups, um, independent film, surely. I mean, if you know, it, it's it's your decision to get out of bed and go make a movie, and and you're not beholden to anyone else. So, so really, it's 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 between you and your iPhone what you do today. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, no matter yeah. who you are. Um, exactly. Exactly. And also, <clears throat> let's just also talk about like people from different classes. You know, people from poorer classes that we're not used to hearing from very much. Mm-hmm. Oh, that that or people from minority minorities that aren't heard from very much or whatever you know it's like i don't know it's just like the breadth of possibilities out there are endless and i think that's a good thing yeah higher level of experimentation and i find also that that the uh the higher level of media production is working out cliches quicker uh, yes. you know, cl- cliches arise and then they work this, themselves out of the culture quit more quickly than they used to. Maybe that's just my observation. No, I think that's a good, I think that's an excellent observation. I think that's true. I think, I think that the, I think that, you know, the more films that you, <laughs> that are made, the more, uh, uh, the more, I guess, more opportunities we have to get to the truth. Yeah. Right. And, and to not, and to, and to leave behind that stuff that we've already seen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, getting getting to deeper truths, I think, is very important. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you mentioned uh, I mentioned it at the top of the show, and and you mentioned it once as well. Uh, you're a co-host on a podcast called Movie Geeks United by Blog Talk Radio. Um, it it's definitely something that you're very active in, and that you're you you take a lot of pride in being involved with. Tell us a little bit about what that show is and how you got involved in it. That show was started uh, about eight years ago by a guy named Jamie Duvall, who's down in uh, Tampa, Florida. Uh, he hooked up with another guy, um, J- uh, Jerry Dennis, uh, in uh, in uh, Washington D.C. And then um, and then he also had his friend uh, Chris Wetton on as a third uh, third host occasionally, but. Jamie and Jerry have done it like day in, day episode in, episode out uh, for the past eight years. How I got involved with it was that, um, and by the way, Jamie is a master at, has, has, has proven himself a master at both hosting the show, has a great voice, um, uh, great kind of radio voice, much different than my own. And, uh, and uh, has, has a great, way of controlling the show but even more so than that uh even on top of that let's say he's uh proven himself a master at being able to get a variety of uh uh guests on the show that are just astounding i mean when you go 
and look at moviegeeksunited.net uh, and go into the archives and you look at all the actors and the directors and the screenwriters, the editors, the sound people, the special effects people, the authors, the crit critics. There's over 700 interviews there, uh, not just with newcomers, but also with people like Coppola, uh, De Palma, Cronenberg, James Cameron requested to be on the show. Uh, um, you know, so John Sales, I mean, the number is, en the, the list is endless. So he, he's been uh, great at doing that. He continues to be. And he's also a great editor as well. Um, but um, how I got involved with it was that um, I was up in Brooklyn and I was thinking about how I had always wanted a radio show about movies. Um, and I heard of this thing called podcast and uh, I was about two years into doing my own blog. And I said, well, I'm just going to look up a podcast uh, about movies. And I used to do a show here in Atlanta called film geek. So I just typed in film geek and then movie geeks United came up and they just happened to be doing a show at that very moment. That was a live show. And so they provided a number to call in if you wanted to comment on what they were talking about. So I called in once and um, and did my bit, you know, talked about movies. They instantly knew that this was a guy who knew what he was talking about. And I enjoyed it. Uh, I didn't go back and listen to it or anything like that. I just went and had fun talking and that was it. And uh, then I next week I did it again and I did it again and, and usually I would go down to the streets because at that time I was living in a place in Brooklyn that that um, uh, that I couldn't get phone reception in the in the apartment, you know, in my cell phone. So I'd have to go down to the streets to to, to report in. So there'd be sirens going by and stuff and, and crazy noises in the background. But at any rate, uh, I just kept calling in. And then eventually, you know, it was only about a year later, I said, I'm doing this week, week in, week out. Don't you think it'd be a good idea to be a co-host? And, and he said, he said, Oh, absolutely. And uh, through that, I was able to go uh, represent the film festival. I mean, represent the, uh, the podcast at the New York, uh, New York film festival and at the Tribeca film festival. And then later I've covered, of course, the Massachusetts thing and also the Atlanta festival for it as well. So, uh, so uh, you know, it's it's just a weird a weird case of just being a caller and then uh, then being a co-host, which by the way can't happen anymore now with this show because we don't do the show live anymore. So we we do it we do it just taped and so we can edit out some stuff that we think is goofy or whatever. But um, but uh, yeah, so. So it's a good once thing you a, snuck, snuck yourself in there then. Yeah, once in a lifetime opportunity, but not just for me, for them too, because they they realized that they had a pretty. I uh, I I do provide a, a different kind of voice in the show that they find very valuable, and I'm and I have since been, become you know also a reliable interviewer. I've interviewed you know Carter Burwell, who does the does the um, music for all the Coen Brothers movies and. I got to interview my favorite actor currently on the earth, who, who is uh, Greta Gerwig. So, uh, you know, and a few other people. I, I'm, I'm uh, just interviewed Max Gale, who did the movie uh, The Frontier that was at the film festival a, a few weeks ago. Uh, so, 
yeah. So they realized that Jamie realized, you know, he had a pretty good thing in having me on the show. So that's good. Give us a, a, a quick <coughs> glimpse into what you do best. It's 2014. It's just about September. The big movie season is kind of coming up in the fall and winter. Uh, up to this point, what movies would you point people towards in 2014 that have come out in 2014? Mm. You know what? I, I have um, I have my other computer up here. So let me go up because I keep a list. I keep a list, a running list of movies uh, for each uh, year, you know? Yeah. Um, and so are you, I have, a, are you a note taker when you uh, watch films? I do. I do. take. I, I do. I used to take notes a lot more. What I've realized is that I really don't. I really don't utilize them when they're when they're done, but sometimes it helps to just write the note, uh, and it it kind of burns itself into your memory. Yeah. It's sort of akin to like you know I remember being back in school and and like doing cheat sheets every once in a while, and then uh, for a test, and then realizing when when it came time to take the test that doing the cheat sheet was the most <laughs> I didn't need it when it was over. Yeah, so, just by um, virtue of writing the cheat sheet, you remember it. Yeah, yeah writing it really tiny and everything. Yeah. Um, but uh, movies this year, okay, well, I mean, you know, my, I'll give you the list so far, but I mean, Boyhood is kind of hard to, hard to, Richard Linklater's movie is kind of very difficult to surmount as, a, as an incredible achievement. I mean, any film lover out there has already heard about it, but it's really shot over 12 years. It's uh, about a boy growing from age six to age 18, and they used the same actors. And we went back every year and shot for three or four days and edited it all together, somehow kept it secret, and here it is, and it's this wonderful sort of epic, uh, quiet kind of epic uh, um, that doesn't conform to any real plot description really it's like it's it's dramatic and yet it's anti-dramatic at the same time um it 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 doesn't go into many cliches it has one or two in it but uh but that's forgivable and uh just just an amazing movie but right behind that or maybe depending on on the day that you asked me right before it is a movie by Ari Folman that's coming out. Uh, I guess it's hitting the theaters uh, in New York in September, but it's had a pretty extensive festival run, and it's called The Congress. Uh, it's uh, with Robin Wright, who plays herself in it, and she plays she plays Robin Wright, and she's called into a she's called into a meeting with the head of a studio, kind of like a Harvey Weinstein type. Uh, executive who's played by played brilliantly by the way by uh danny houston and uh she's called in and she's given this opportunity she said he says listen people want the robin wright of princess bride they want the robin wright of forrest gump we are going to offer you the opportunity to let us with our computers scan your entire being every facial every facial movement, every emotion that you have, every movement that you have, we're going to scan you into our computers and you will live forever as that young Robin Wright. However, you can never act again. 
You cannot be in a commercial. You cannot be on stage in New Zealand. You can't do any other acting again. You will take the money that we give you and you will go off and you will chase your other dreams. And so that is kind of the in the brilliant in to this movie, which by the way, is based on a novel by Stanislaw Lim, uh, the famous sci-fi writer who's uh, long since passed, but uh, that's the kind of end to a movie that actually is, is half live action and half animated. Harry Fullman is the same guy who did Waltz with Bashir a few years ago, the, uh, the animated movie about the, the Israeli conflict. Um, so that movie is insanely great. It's going to be a divisive movie, but I think divisive movies are the most interesting because half the audience absolutely loves it and says, that was the movie for me. That's the way I felt about the Congress. It actually moved me to tears. But uh, but then there was half of the people coming out saying, I didn't get that at all. But look, that's the same thing that happened in 2001 in Space Odyssey, and that's my favorite movie of all time. So, uh, so to me, the divisive movies are always more interesting. But I loved Under the Skin, the uh, Jonathan Glazer movie, also a very divisive sci-fi movie. Great year for sci-fi, by the way. I'm not a huge sci-fi fan, but this year you had Under the Skin, you have Jodorowsky's Dune about the about you know Alejandro Jodorowsky trying to make Dune back in the 70s, uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, uh, Snowpiercer, uh, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, let's see what else is here. Uh, Edge of Tomorrow. I um, mean, like uh, there's you know so many great sci-fi movies this year. It's kind of ridiculous. And um, then, you know, I like uh, I like the Roger Ebert documentary, Life Itself, uh, the great David Gordon Green movie with uh, Nicolas Cage and Ty Sheridan called Joe, which has some amazing performances in it by non-actors. It's the non-actors in that movie that I mean, one of them was a homeless guy that they picked out and he plays the main villain in it. It's his only movie. He died two months after the movie complete completed shooting and it's one of the great performances of the year further proof, uh, further proof that, that all you need for a good performance is to be comfortable right exactly right yeah i mean absolutely um uh and i think david gordon green with his he was he was i ta- got to talk to him at the uh atlanta film festival very briefly but he's a real uh he's somebody who throughout his career has been able to uh to to pick non-actors out and make them feel comfortable, make them feel as if their contributions matter. Uh, they can, they can really have an authorship and a stewardship of this movie if they choose. And, uh, and that engages them instantly. Uh, I, I don't think that's a bad way to, uh, to direct a movie. I think, uh, you know, that's, that's the, that's the way you're going to get great performances out of your actors is by, convincing them that, that their ideas do matter and, and, and everything and to, uh, and to, yeah, to just make them feel comfortable to do it. I mean, how do you direct actors? I mean, how do you make your, you've, you've made your actors feel, I think, obviously very comfortable in front of the camera. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, uh, you'll see, it's actually Frank, there's a number of non-actors, including my, my wife actually plays the, one of the female leads and in having fun up there, uh, Hannah, who plays the Berkeley girl, the younger Berkeley girl, mm-hmm. um, she was a non-actor as well. And mm-hmm. th- these are just people from my life. And, and I, I find that, that when I can relate to these people, when I know what makes them tick, um, 
uh, you know, I remember on Sexually Frank, we went through a few exercises where we threw the dialogue out way in, in advance of pre-production and we just improvised the, the beats in the scene and, and we weren't the characters. We were just the real people um, mm-hmm. we're just trying to act out the scenarios. And then after a while, we didn't have to do that at all. Um, but I think what really lends to it um, is, is not, I'm, I'm, I've been told that my direction is calm, relaxed and, and contributes, but I, I don't, I'm not always convinced it's my direction. I'm more convinced that it's the environment. Uh, the environment is, is, you know, we we don't make a huge deal out of when we're rolling. We don't make a huge deal of when we're cut. Um, the 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 scene is so, so, the, so the lines between the lines between reality get blurred. I guess. Yeah, there's there's the scene is kind of always ongoing. Um, I don't think the actors feel like they're up on a stage with the spotlight shining on them and it freaks them out. Um, uh, they're not beholden to get the dialogue exactly right. Um, I would rather. Sometimes I'll I'll just throw something out from behind the camera just to crack them up or just to break the moment. And sometimes mm-hmm. breaking the moment is the thing that that gets the more interesting performance. And then of course, uh, uh, taking it from enough, taking enough coverage that you can piece to get. Because the only thing that sometimes I'm not able to get live is the right rhythm. And if you mm-hmm. get if you get enough coverage, you can design a rhythm from all the best moments. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I would think that also what that does is uh, is it also keeps the movie fresh for you because oh, yeah. you never know you never know how it's going to turn out really like you you haven't mapped it out like to the nth degree to the point where it's all wrote mm-hmm. by the time you get into the uh, the editing room so it keeps it fresh and and I, I I find that I think that movies are about discovery too you know they're about discovering things you know. It's uh, uh, you can kind of feel when a when a director is completely engaged in their subject matter. Let's let me give you an example. There are some um, documentaries out there that are about I don't know. They'll be about I don't know comic strip or something. I, I saw one that was about Calvin and Hobbes called Dear Mr. Watterson. And basically, you know, I'm I love Calvin and Hobbes, so I've watched it and. The problem with the movie was that the filmmaker knew everything about Calvin and Hobbes. The only thing he didn't know was what Bill Watterson, the creator, looked and sounded like or whatever. So that was the only that was the only thing left to discover in the movie. Otherwise, the movie was just a bunch of talking heads with fans and comic strip artists and so forth saying how much they love Calvin and Hobbes. Well, that doesn't really tell me anything. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're all we all love it. That's why we're watching it. So what else is there? So what happened with that movie was it interesting subject matter, but no sense of discovery for the director. And so you can sense a sort of loss of energy there. There's a certain sense of loss of of just uh, pizzazz or whatever. And so there's no, you know. And I think that happens with narrative films too. I mean, if they're too if they're too worked out, if they're too if if you have to adhere to every single little detail that the director or writer or whatever tells you to do, I don't know. It just loses something. It definitely is going to lose its naturalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. By the way, I did want to mention some other movies. I mentioned you know uh, a lot of bigger movies that people might know or whatever, but. I also wanted to mention some of the indie movies that I loved that I've seen on the uh, on the indie circuit. 
Um, uh, there's a, a great uh, romantic comedy, actually truly romantic, actually truly funny, called Forev. It's out there. It's by Molly Green and James Leffler. You can see it. It's like Forev, F-O-R-E-V, without the E-R at the end of it. And uh, uh, just a really terrific romantic comedy. A documentary called The Great Chicken Wing Hunt by uh, by Matt Reynolds, who took a busload of chicken wing lovers and took them through what he called the wing belt of like Buffalo, New York, and all of, all through New York and the and the um, and the New England area, and uh, and tried to find the best chicken wing. It's seventy five minutes long and it's really amazing. It's it's kind of it's not just a movie about chicken wings. It's about a movie about kind of doing something really crazy and, and seeing it through. Um, Blue Ruin, the wonderful, uh, <clears throat> the wonderful uh, sort of, uh, I guess it's a revenge movie, you know, it's a revenge movie, uh, but it's also kind of like, it's a revenge movie that comes out of, not of anger, but of sadness. Uh, and uh, the filmmaker's name is escaping me right now, but it's called Blue Ruin and it's quite wonderful. Uh, Cheatin', the uh, animated movie by Bill, Bill Plimpton that's uh, sort of an adult animated movie uh, about uh, two people who fall in love and then are uh, constantly being bombarded by other people trying to break up their relationship. Uh, it's about 70 minutes long, and it's all hand-drawn with uh, 40,000 hand-drawn pieces of art. Uh, unbelievably amazing. Um the Foxy Merkins, a uh, great comedy out of New York City uh, uh, that's about lesbian prostitution, which I found is is a uh, is something that doesn't exist, really. So that actually makes it funny. There is no lesbian prostitution. But this is a movie about it's kind of like a funny take on um, on Midnight Cowboy with a overweight, uh, asthmatic uh, woman getting out there on the streets, offering her body up to lesbians for purchase, and then getting in contact with the movie's kind of Joe Buck character or kind of a combination of Joe Buck and, and Rezzo Rizzo, uh, uh, who's an experienced prostitute. Great performances by the leads, including Lisa Haas, who I might be staying with up in New York City when I go to the uh, film festival up there. But uh, things like, uh, you know, um, Limo Ride, the documentary uh, from Alabama about a crazy night, a crazy drunken night uh, um, that involves a limo ride to nowhere. And just just an insane documentary. It's kind of a movie about memory and uh, and uh, and and just just the craziest night that you could possibly imagine, you know, um, uh, I believe in unicorns, which is a terrific movie about a, uh, a young girl falling in love for the first time. Uh, it's, uh, by Lisa Meyerhoff. Uh, she, she actually won the best feature award at the Atlanta film festival this year. And, uh, and finally I could mention so many more, but I'm going to mention a chair fit for an angel, which was the best movie I saw at the Massachusetts independent film festival. Um, uh, which was a documentary about the Shakers, which is kind of a uh, an, uh, an 18th century English religion that um, 
has a certain philosophy about their art, their music, and their uh, their making of their furniture and building of their buildings and so forth, where they put all of their love of God into making these very beautiful utilitarian sort of things and doing this music and just an amazing dance film too, like uh, just almost indescribably beautiful. Um, I, I just wanted to say this. Um, I'm working on an article about my 20 favorite films at the Massachusetts Independent Film Festival, which yours is one of those. So, um, so those will, that'll be up sometime this week or whatever. And you can read about some of the great shorts and stuff that maybe you didn't get a chance to see there. But, uh, I mean, the, the, Going to the film festival route and seeing things like that, I mean, sometimes these movies, I won't hear tell of them for another year or two, and then they'll pop up on VOD or whatever, or, you know, and um, and then there's movies that I programmed at the Delonica Film Festival that I loved. I mean, absolutely loved. This, this is 10 years ago, and I've never seen them since. They've gone. They're gone. They're not online. They're not they're not on great great shorts great great i mean they are so listen after here's my advice after a certain time when you don't think that your film is going to get a vod release or whatever you know and you've done this movie and it's three or four years later and nobody's doing anything with it or whatever just go ahead and put it on youtube yeah Please let people see it. Yeah. You know, let people see. I don't understand why more shorts and things aren't going the YouTube route. You know, I mean, what what are you going to do with it? You know, people are taught to be weirdly protective of their media to 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 the point that ultimately no one sees it. I there there was somebody recently that you know Maria uh, recommended our film to to him. And uh, he found an unlisted, you know, because we we have a private unlisted link to it on YouTube. And he was kind of almost embarrassed that he watched it. And I was like, motherfucker, I make movies for people to watch. (laughs) I I do not mind that you saw this movie. I'm glad you saw it. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, you know, just, you know, put your put your movie out there. I mean, I saw so many great shorts at the festival, you know, things like, you know, uh, 13 Blue or. Earth, Water, Woman, or Butterfly Fluttering from from Russia, or or Waging War from France, uh, uh, Ray Jess from uh, from um, from Brooklyn, uh, just amazing, amazing stuff. And just after after your festival run, if you can't find any way else to make any money out of it, please just put it up there for people to see. Because I mean, you know. It's the, it's the best. It, don't let it sit in a closet somewhere. That's ridiculous. Why are you making movies? You got to let people watch them. You know. So I love hey. I love 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 that sentiment. Not enough people have uh, feel that way, and uh, and I think it's important that you say that. Um, yeah. Listen, you you have uh, you have shown us why you ended up co-hosting an awesome podcast because you can talk, sir. And, <laughs> and that is fantastic. Thank you for bringing such awesome content to my podcast. And and uh, I, from the bottom of my heart, dude, like I can't thank you enough for, for giving our movie the time of day that you did. We were starting to get worried. And um, if it ends here with, with you kind of giving, giving it the spotlight for five minutes, that was huge for us. So thank you so, so much for that. Well, thank you for making, uh, making a great movie. And uh, I, I, 
really encourage you to keep doing it because you have a unique voice. And I'm I'm really looking forward to sitting down and watching Sexually Frank uh, later on this week. And I'll call you when I do and everything and, and let you know what I think. I will let you know, by the way, like exactly what I think of it. So like where it falls down and where it's where it's where it's where it rises. So um, so I'm pretty unafraid to to talk to filmmakers about their negatives as well as their positives. So uh, but um, I just, you know, I have so much respect for for you and for your collaborators for even just completing a movie, much less completing a very good movie. Well, so, uh, uh, and I'm also incredibly gratified to be someone who can tell the world at least a little bit about how great it is. I, I really appreciate it. And, and, you know, if, uh, if, if, if anybody, you know, if, if anybody is able to get your feedback from from submitting to other festivals or whatever, um, it's it's obviously valuable. You don't watch thirty thousand movies and don't come up with something of an informed opinion about what makes a film good and what makes it bad. And for that reason, uh, I I know maybe you don't want to hear it at this time of your life, but I think you're crazy not to be making your own films. You obviously know <laughs> what to do. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's what the Jason Miller. I do have an idea for a film. You know, um, I do. Uh, I do. I'll just go ahead and talk about this on the show. I suffer from depression a lot and everything. I think possibly my depression comes from maybe not chasing what I really should be doing, which is making movies. So maybe it is time. There is there is a part of me that is is saying maybe I've done enough of this and maybe it's time to move on and, and just see if I can finish this one project and, and see if I can, which would be a comedy about depression. And uh, and then see if I can uh, move on to a different sort of obsession. Good or good or bad. If there's one thing I know how to do, it's how to go out and finish making a movie. So if you if you need uh, anything from me, uh, really, um, please reach out to me. I, I I know I can help you. I and I also know uh, how to make a movie for no money. That that movie you saw was made for uh it for as I say gas and food, and that was it. Um, right. So, right. Well, that's why I'm really looking forward to reading the book. By the way, I'm really, really looking. That's that's that was that when you presented me with you doing that book, I was like, oh my god, this is something completely new. I haven't seen this yet, so I'm very excited to read that. Well, but, as evidenced by the podcast, for me talking about the making of these films and talking about what makes movies good or bad or interesting or otherwise is just as relevant and important to me as going out to me, making the films is an icebreaker for conversations like these. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, by the way, I think that also with film festivals, I've talked to the Atlanta film festival too. I think that talking about the love of movies is just as important at a film festival as talking about the making of them and the ins and outs of what did you shoot it on and what was your budget and all that stuff. I'm trying to get the Atlanta Film Festival to do uh, something with us, maybe bring bringing all three of, you know, the three guys on the uh, podcast, me, Jamie, and Jerry, have never met face to face. Never, not once. So we're thinking about trying to do something at the Atlanta Film Festival where we finally meet face to face and uh and i want to talk to the executive director of that festival to 
start bringing in more uh, panels about film history and the love of movies and so forth. I think that's something that's neglected in the film festival world. Even, so. even just, as I said, uh, just reading a little bit of filmic ability, um, it brought me back there. We forget about that sometimes, but that's what brought us into this in the first place was, was those, <laughs> those candies and those trashy movies as you wrote so beautifully about, uh, it's Dean Treadway. The, the, the blog is filmicability.blogspot.com. Uh, you can listen to the podcast movie geeks United by blog talk radio. I think it's available on iTunes and, and various other platforms. And, uh, uh, you know, here, here's somebody who can actually teach us something and a lot of things actually. So Dean, thanks again. And uh, I hope we stay in touch. Thank you. We absolutely will. Thank you so much, Frankie. Nights in white satin Never reaching the end Letters I've written Never meaning to send Beauty I'd always missed With these eyes before Just what the truth is I can't say anymore Cause I love you Try to tell me Thoughts they cannot defend Just what you want to be You will be in the end And I love you
Say 